Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming AF events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with Tom Kundig, a director at the Seattle-based architecture practice Olsen Kundig. Best known for his cabins and houses and their distinct kinetic elements, Kundig treats architecture as an opportunity for invention, taking risks and questioning preconceived notions. Whether it's a matter of propping up in a skylight, creating a stair from a single sheet of folded metal, or raising an entire facade, Kundig and his collaborators arrive at solutions that are often as delightful as they are pragmatic. Kundig was in town in September to give a lecture at the Royal Academy, and I met with him early the following morning at the Covent Garden Hotel, where we talked about, among other things, the wide range of experiences which have influenced his work, including mountain climbing, hot rod culture, and the landscapes of the Pacific Northwest. We also talk about the sense of invention and risk inherent in his work, and the challenge of bringing this to bear on larger public commissions. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. devices on great um <clears throat> so hold on <laughs> um, it's seven thirty. <laughs> <laughs> so you grew up in the pacific northwest yeah uh, in seattle you spent time in idaho as well as southern british columbia yeah yeah um a little bit of the history, which is important actually to to what I do and and what I got involved in, is that both my parents are originally from Switzerland and actually immigrated in in the fifties to California, and that's where I was born. Was in California, but um, quite quickly um, they moved to the Pacific Northwest, uh, specifically on the east side of Washington, uh, which is sort of uh, right on the border with Idaho. So really, my my sort of circle of, uh, of um, you know, my youth uh, growing up, if, you know, it, it's always like if somebody asks you where you're from, you always just, you know, you, it's where you grew up, basically, even though maybe you spent a lot more current years um, in another place. For me, that would be Seattle. But um, my uh, sort of circle of influence as a kid, especially in the mountains and the high deserts and whatever, reached all the way up into um, eastern British Columbia, up into the Rockies, and then down uh, through northern Idaho, even into western Montana, and of course eastern Washington. Mm -hmm. So that was my sort of landscape stocking, um, stomping grounds. So what's so hard in hearing you describe um, these regions or these locales? is that typically when you talk to architects, um, influence for them means other individuals. Um, And I know that there are people in your life who we'll talk about later who've kind of informed the way you think about design. Mm -hmm. But um, you always lead with this point that um, it really is landscape and region that um, had changed the way you think about the kind of architecture you could do. Oh, it's, I mean, it's, it's an interesting point you're making, and I, I just do it kind of naturally. If somebody asks me what my influence is, it, to your point, it's not necessarily the academic realm, or it's not, not always uh, just uh, personal mentors, but it really is a region. And that influence has been um, deeply important to the way I think about things. Um, last night, uh, 
at the RA, I talked a little bit about, um, and I do talk a, a bit about th this um, influence that when I grew up in a big, sort of a big sky country, sort of almost intimidating in a sense, it's, it's a big high desert landscape, it's mountain landscape, your position in, in the sort of cosmos almost becomes pretty clear that you're a relatively minor part in this sort of larger, larger landscape. And um, I think that's influenced me in a good way with how I make design decisions because I make design decisions more as more part of the context of where I am it, rather than sort of that I'm the center of this context. In fact, I'm looking to the context which is around me, which can be a which can be a big city, could be a big landscape, it can be a big culture, it can be a lot of things, but it's just more of a, maybe more of a humble um, position that that's taken uh, when sort of being influenced when when sort of not sort of but when influenced by the uh, the context. Mm. Then also, you know, and, and you know this uh, coming from from British Columbia. I was huge. Well, at least in my generation, I'm, I was hugely influenced um, by the uh, extraction industries. You know, the mining, the logging, the farming, um, and that's why really my first interest. Even though my father was an architect, my first interest was um, physics, basically, and how things worked. And um, obviously, that's had a big influence on mm. my uh, the stuff I do. So both your parents are Swiss. Your father was an architect. And in other lectures and interviews you've given, you talked about how early on there was a sense of um, distaste around the profession mm -hmm. and its culture a little bit, mm -hmm. which I'm really interested in, this kind of, um, I think, occasionally feeling of ickiness <laughs> <laughs> that comes with um, the culture of architecture. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And I wondered if we could, if we could dwell on that for just a second. Sure. <laughs> well, it's an interesting, and obviously, it's it, you. You know, you always have to sort of be careful. You don't want to offend anybody, and you don't want to anger anybody. But you know, I'm. A, I, I was a little kid, you know, and I was a little kid just observing what w was happening around me. And um, the the architects struck me, and they. St I still think there's a culture. A little bit of a culture of arrogance and a little bit of a culture of, of entitlement, which I think is unfortunate because really, architects at their core we're 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 not, not social engineers so much, but we're really social voyeurs. We really we really should be um, figuring out and in a, in almost an intimate way what's happening around us. We shouldn't be somehow above it or off to the side of it. We should actually be. Uh, deeply embedded in it. And that means you take more, again, like the influence of maybe a large landscape, you take more um, humble or a modest approach to it. Because at the end of the day, you're the interpreter. Uh, at, in a built form, you're the interpreter of this situation. So you should actually be um, sort of inclusive rather than exclusive. Now, I didn't think of architecture at that level when I was a little kid. I just didn't like, I just didn't personally like that sort of position that I felt that the architects I was around were always sort of taking um, with kids or, you know, situation. But the people I did really think were interesting were the artists. And because I was around architects, um, I was naturally around artists in that community. Um, they were so much more generous in a sense, uh, at least for me, mm -hmm. and uh, funny, uh, fun to be around. Uh, particularly sort of crazy creative in a funny way. Now, I knew I never would be an artist mm. for whatever reason. I, I just knew that art was not going to be my uh, my life. There was one artist in particular who you worked closely with mm. uh, throughout your teenage years? Oh, even younger. Even in, okay. Yeah, I, I actually I grew up with the family in a sense. There was a, a very close family relationship and he was also an artist that was all uh, very influential, not just to me, but also to um, a lot of people in, in, the, in that, what we call the Inland Empire, which is sort of the area around Spokane. There's an Inland Empire actually in California, so that actually gets a little, little confusing. But um, Harold uh, was an artist, is, was an artist, just passed away about a year ago. 
um, was an artist that um, might have seen more commercial success had he gone to uh, a New York or an L.A. Or, or someplace like that, but he was one of those special people that decided to stay mm. in their village and then become hugely influential in the village. And um, again, I was lucky to be around him, and I did work on some of his work, but the most important influence was observing. You know, the observing, the sort of inventiveness, the risk-taking, uh, the fun, you know. Um, at the end of the day, design is, you know, not saving lives. <laughs> it might be changing lives, but it's not a life-or-death situation. So he had a, a sort of, a, and the artists around him had a sort of uh, uh, sense of, of the, uh, an appropriate sort of engagement and joy with uh, art mm. uh, and design that uh, I found uh, Infectious, mm. frankly, and I did. Even though I didn't want to be an artist, even though I knew I didn't want to be an architect, I was more interested in hard sciences. Even as a kid, um, it's still, you know, it was still really important for me to 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 see and engage in. So this is Harold uh, Ballas Blaze Blaze Blaze. Yeah, it's a Norwegian Harold Blaze. Okay. Blaze, yeah. Well, yeah, and the other thing he, of course, taught me because he built all his sculptures. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't have anybody fabricate them. Mm. So he was a uh, he was an um, interesting fabricator uh, in the sense that he was very fast and, and, uh, and, and skilled, obviously, working metal, wood, concrete, um, uh, tile, paint, uh, watercolor, all sorts of mediums. And that had an influence on me, obviously, because my architecture actually does really embrace sort of a risk mm -hmm. and an experimentation mm. at a material level. Uh, and a uh, authentic level, if that makes sense, and and then um, hopefully makes you smile, and hopefully is uh, uh, sort of humanistic mm. in, in its response to a situation. Um, I want to talk about um, this period in your life that you refer to as your lost years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, those are yeah, those are kind of funny funny years, and maybe it is when I was sort of figuring out uh, was architecture really that important um, to, to my life. And at one point, it, I, it was, I was specifically trying to avoid it, and I was obviously in, in, into something else. But I had something that was really important um, to me that I began to develop, largely because my parents are from Switzerland, so the mountains obviously become very important culturally. So they took me into the mountains, we hiked as a family, and. Um, they were not climbers, but clearly I was intrigued by the climbing culture, certainly when we would go to the Canadian Rockies um, and we would see, you know, what was happening, you know, and uh, I just remember as a little kid going to Edith Cavell and, you know, just seeing um, climbers heading off. I thought that was completely intriguing. Of course, I was exposed to it when we went back to Switzerland, if we were in the, um, the Jungfrau uh, Eiger area. But... Um, my mom also all, almost urged me as a, as a kid uh, of about 16 years old to join the Spokane Mountaineers. And so mm. because I was a skier most of my life, um, she thought it was just sort of an, another natural stage in, in, in the Swiss culture to then become more engaged in, in, the, in the climbing scene. I don't think she wanted me to engage it quite as deeply as I did. You know, I, I got, I, I was really fortunate to, to uh, uh, learn from, at that time, some of the best climbers in the world. Um, and, uh, I mean, Reinhold Mesner at that point was probably, uh, obviously he's one of the best climbers ever, and, and Peter Habler, his, his uh, climbing partner. Uh, but John Ross Kelly and Chris Kopsinski were certainly very influential as, as tip-top climbers in the world at that point. And I just lucked out. I was there to watch these uh, uh, athletes um, uh, really at the top of their game and learn from them. I learned a lot from them. I learned a lot about discipline. I learned a lot about efficiencies. I learned a lot about um, uh, training, in a sense, a skill. So, and then obviously, you know, I could talk quite a long time about, again, these, these lost years in a sense that 
they weren't really ultimately lost years. They were just years I wasn't involved in architecture, or maybe I had more of a focus on something as a sidebar to architecture, thinking it had no relationship to architecture, but in fact it had everything to do with architecture. That, um, it, you know, again, from, a, from maybe more of a sort of a physics, engineering, science focus, I obviously climbing is basically repurposing these, these devices in a way to um, make your climb safer or you can actually use them as, as things to stand on. But you, what you're doing is you're, you're, involved, you're involved in a journey and you're sort of assembling a solution to that journey. And, but you quickly learn that as you sort of engineer that solution, the better you are at it, the more um, the more interesting the journey is, and that's certainly true with architecture. That the more discipline, the uh, the more sort of training, the more sort of background, um, and then in in the in our tools as architects, then then once you learn those tools, you don't just repeat them; you actually push it to the next level. You're mm. always sort of pushing it. So that's why I've kind of see I see that influence on my career, and I saw it. They took a 16-year-old kind of knucklehead kid that just thought climbing to the top, you know, getting to the top was the most important thing. And you learn quickly, no, it's how you got to the top. It's how elegant, how disciplined, how efficient. Mm. Um, and yeah, you've mentioned it elsewhere when you talk about mountain climbing, because it is really a part, I think, of yourself image in a way mm. and how you understand um your attitude towards architecture yeah and it's this like metaphor that mountain climbing has offered you in terms of understanding yeah. um methodology or approach totally or process even totally agree and um i find that really interesting as well that like here are these here are these figures fundamental to your um self-formation um, and also to your approach to design that exists entirely outside of the discipline in a lot of ways yeah. and yet are completely a part of it. it, it exactly. It, and that's what I was just about to say. It, it, for years, I just thought that was, a, that was like a, a wing or a, another fork that I was off into some crazy. But in fact, it informed everything and the way I think, the what I do. And if I, if I say to a group of students or young uh, architects and I... And I give them my kind of background and I tell them that, you know, this was really important uh, to my career and, and, and still the place I harvest probably most of the energy <laughs> for my design is from those lost years in, in an odd way. I'm not saying you got to go into skiing or climbing <laughs> to, to do architecture. You just, anything you do that's outside of architecture Anything you're interested in, if it's music, if it's um, literature, if it's theater, if it's dance, um, anything you do outside of architecture is in fact really important to, to your architecture, your personal vision of, um, of, of, of doing buildings, of designing buildings. Mm. I find that so um, exciting to hear and refreshing. Uh, especially being um, in, immersed in a culture of architecture where tradition and continuity um, are so much a part of the way people think one ought to approach design and architecture. Mm -hmm. And so to, to see someone who looks so far outside the field um, to kind of swerve a bit or skew things a bit, I also find really exciting. And you've, you've kind of talked about this position you occupy as a troublemaker in architecture. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more, more about that. Yeah, you know, that may be kind of an uh, overstatement. I don't think I'm a, a, a troublemaker like, uh, like I'm out there trying to cause, to cause problems. In fact, I'm, I'm probably opposite of that. I'm, I'm almost, I just wanna, um, I just wanna explore in a, in, in a way and uh, maybe make it almost more of a, personal journey and in reflection you recognize that you're almost a troublemaker in a way because you're not following the rules and and I think that's um, 
circling back to a point that I think you're making, which is really important. I think there is um, a, there is this danger in the architecture um, world, the profession, is that it becomes so sort of self-referential and, and sort of circular in its myopic sort of position that it forgets, again, talking about something earlier, that we're really a part of a much, much, much bigger sphere, much bigger world. I'm actually kind of interested in that world, probably more than I am in, in the architecture world. That's not saying you can't understand, you shouldn't, you should avoid the architecture world because in fact, there is a lot to learn um, and to be inspired by architects that really have done, um, I mean, stunning work where it just, it, it leaves you speechless. So what is it that raises their work to that level that you probably can never achieve? And that is um, like this, you know, that, that, that's like this reach that probably keeps us all going as architects. Part of, I guess, making trouble for oneself has to do with being comfortable with being lost. Yeah, and, that's interesting. Yeah, I agree. And I, like another um, part of that period of time for you, it sounds like before you really got into architecture, was um, being someone who um, tinkered away on things, and mm -hmm. specifically on cars. And so mm -hmm. hot rod culture mm -hmm. is another thing, it's another kind of major theme, I guess, mm -hmm. in the way that you um, share your understanding of yourself with the general public. This is part of a lot of your lectures and mm -hmm. other interviews as well. Um, and so, like, why, why the hot rod? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I never was a, oh man, I'm, I'm, and frankly, I never built my own hot rod, which is really, um, which is really a heck of a commitment um, and an understanding of hot rodding. I think less so than architecture and uh, uh, skiing, I think the, the hot rod culture was more for me observational, where I just saw, and occasionally I'd be involved in it, you know, mostly for my involvement was body work you know and it's a there's mechanical work which i never really could break that code but what i definitely appreciated was the skills and what was happening in the mechanical systems of the of the cars my involvement was more like about uh about the bo um the body and the paint which is a, again a different is just sort of a different mindset but the influence of seeing these personalities, it's like watching the artist, it's like watching Harold Blaze. I was not an artist, but to watch him, watch him take a commodity and reinvent it in his own sort of um, idea was, was, and Harold was one that actually pointed it out to me. Hot Rod Culture is, is they're artists, basically, because they're doing exactly what I do as an artist. They're, they're taking this thing and they're, they're reimagining it, you know. They're taking this commodity and they're they're making it into their own um, vision of, of of not only speed but also sight, you know, what it looks like. Um, so, and just because I grew up in that era, you know, the the '60s and the '70s, almost virtually every garage in our neighborhood had some sort of hot rod under some sort of uh, fabrication and. Um, I just remember just being totally fascinated by it. Mm. I still am fascinated by it. I still watch. Um, I still, if I can, I go to Bonneville Salt Flats. I love seeing um, all those crazy inventions that people are flinging down this salt flat, you know, at three to 400 miles an hour. And, and they're kind of homemade jobs, you know, in a way. And you're just going, oh my goodness. You know, that, that that's, that's geometric risk right there. And, um, uh, on so many levels is, is, is so interesting and um. yeah that's interesting the risk um, involved in these kinds of pursuits mm -hmm. which exist outside of the world of regulation to a certain yeah. extent oh yeah that's a really good point because they in fact do have their own regulations at the salt flat uh, salt flats but you're right there's there's a there's a certain standard, but there's inventiveness going and, on. And so, like, there's a, th you worked on your own house and called mm -hmm. it the hot, hot rod, rod house mm -hmm. as a kind of testament to this uh, 
attitude or way of working. Yep. And there's some contraptions in that house that I thought were really interesting. One is a kind of rig. I think that raises and lowers a TV between oh. floors. <laughs> uh, yeah. From your bedroom to the kitchen. Yeah. There's also like a like a continuous folded steel staircase that yeah. runs throughout the house. You also talked about uh, in another conversation um, how you avoided using flashing, I think, or conventional weathering uh, strips. In windows. In windows, yeah. yeah. Um, and so you were kind of testing out hunches you had mm -hmm. about what was possible mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, w with, with architecture for you, I guess, mm -hmm. um, within the scale of your house. That's right. Um, and that's why I called it the high rod house because um, in a sense I was hot rodding this this kind of horrible house that we we found and we had to keep the the skeleton of it or at least the 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 shape of it um, to a certain extent we actually added a floor but basically the perimeter had to had to stay because in fact it was non-conforming on the piece of property so it was given a set of circumstances to make something out of and I thought it was kind of it was actually more exciting than doing a brand new house mm -hmm. because it allowed me to, to your point, go in to uh, make um, inventions to sort of solve this problem. The folded stair is a perfect example because, in fact, if you look at the fold, if you look at that stair, which actually has been pretty influential in our our design world. It, it has nothing to do with sort of arbitrary decisions, even though it looks like it's got these sort of funny angles to it. In fact, those funny, quote-unquote, funny angles are just like a hot rod. They are responding to an existing situation that had to be solved. In other words, the reason they're um, at a funny angle is because I needed room to make it fit. It was like doing a header, mm. making a header in a, in a, in a car. You know, there's a beautiful sculpture if you look at when you look at the header visually, but in fact, it's all function-based. It has to get around things and through things, and still operate. Well, that's the way that stair had to work. So that's super exciting when something, uh, a set of a context, a situation, a situational deal uh, drives a functional deal, and then ultimately uh, has an aesthetic uh, effect. Mm -hmm. To me, that's architecture. You know, art is uh, art is different. Art is art is like you have no constraints, and you're in your head. And an artist then makes this um, gesture, however, and it's beautiful, it's wonderful. But that's a much different. Uh, it's a, more like a poetic reaction. Uh, architecture is more like a. a the, we always say the the intersection between. Um, the rational and the poetic. So that stare is actually really important um, uh, for, for me in my career. The mm. TV, the, the TV um, delivery system, uh, I'm not sure that was, that, <laughs> that was not 100%. You know, and that's what you can do with your own house. It's uh -huh. like the window flashing. I took a risk on that window flashing. And, you know, I was talking about a little bit last night and saying, you know, at, at, at the end of the day, I, I don't think I could actually, I did everything wrong, you know? I just had a hunch, to your point, I had a hunch this could work because in fact, skyscrapers are made out of this caulking and there's really no flashing on these big windows. So I asked this skyscraper, um, this guy that does glazing on skyscrapers, said, hey, what, what's the flashing on, on these skyscrapers? And he said it was this goo, basically. Mm. I said, well, why can't you just basically take that goo and glue it onto your onto your steel onto your moment frame and he goes no i don't think there's any reason you can't and so i did it because um i i said to him i said well as far as i know i can't sue myself for mm -hmm. doing something completely wrong so i'm just going to give this a try we tried it it works but i couldn't really I couldn't really, from a liability standpoint, I can't, can't really do it on any other project. I just had to do it for myself, which you can do with a hot rod. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's an interesting point that there's a, there's a specific world within which it is possible to experiment in this way. Mm -hmm. And that world is, in terms of scale, very small. Totally agree. Um, and, I mean, you've spoken before about how um, residential architecture for you is kind of fundamental not only for 
the degree of experimentation it offers up, but also just the fact that it is literally like shelter. It's like kind of quintessentially about shelter and comfort and refuge yep. um, and prospect. These are words you use. Mm -hmm. um, and th I'm going to ask kind of stereotypical or cliche question that I know a lot of people are trying to grapple with when they look at your work. And it, it's about how um, that transition is made from the kind of domestic residential scale mm -hmm. um, to larger projects mm -hmm. in probably more urban contexts. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you're probably best known for the cabins and houses you've done, mm -hmm. which are often in isolated, um, remote, natural settings. Right. Um, and they exist as these kind of gems in a landscape, beautifully photographed, and they really feed, I think, um, um, like our culture's desire for um, that aesthetic and that lifestyle, which has to do with self-sustenance, self mm -hmm. living off-grid, um, being resilient, and, um, and kind of making do with what's available. Mm -hmm. um, and another way of putting it is like, it's kind of like cabin porn. I don't know if you're familiar mm -hmm. with oh, that. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting that like your first two house books, um, I was reading, they're the best-selling books in Princeton Architecture Press's catalog mm -hmm. uh, by far. And that in and of itself is a testament to the desire we have as a culture for these types of images, essentially, is what, what we're left with in the pages of books like that. That's exactly right. Um, and so we have that world, really, which is fascinating and enticing and... And then we have the world that we're sitting in right now, which is like in the middle of a big city, mm -hmm. um, where insurance and liability and regulation all lay quite a heavy hand on what can be possible in design. And so there is this transition you make uh, between scales. And I wonder, how much do you push back against those kinds of strictures? And how much do you be continue to question you know, what's possible at larger scales? Oh, it's a it's yeah. That's a that's a great question because you're right. Um, uh, I'm not. I don't. For me, it's not a scale issue, as much as it is. Um, there's a liability issue that begins emerging when you're working more with a, in the public realm than you are in the private realm. Mm. Um, um, it's almost like you're asking two questions, and one is about. Um, uh, you know the scale of something, and 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 how do you uh, why why do small scales sometimes almost work out better in in some of this risk taking um, attitude? And it's because <clears throat> in a small scale you're dealing with a, a single entity. You're dealing with a you're dealing with an owner. It's either yourself or it's a, a private owner, and you can articulate to that owner what what kind of risk you're taking here and they they're usually people that are different than most people that are on the sidewalk because they first of all they hired an architect mm -hmm. that's actually already you've distinguished yourself as being sort of a different kind of personality that's more um, comfortable with risk um, hiring an architect is a is, is actually a pretty big risk if you think about it you're 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 putting out all this emotional financial um, commitment <clears throat> And it's, it would be a lot easier to just buy a spec house, and, and most people do. But the people that hire an architect, they're, they're actually already extraordinary. So you can, you can engage in that conversation with that owner about taking the next level risk. They don't have to. In fact, I almost urge them not to, in a sense, at this point in my career, because there is, there is, a, there is not so much physical risk, but there's emotional risk. and, mm. and uh, so what do you uh, mean financial. that you encourage clients now to be well, more cautious? Yeah, because um, when you're sort of a prototype, or like really prototyping something, it really does kind of <laughs> become expensive emotionally mm. and financially because you're you're um, you're you're out you're coloring outside the box. You're you're not. It's like you've become part of the troublemaker situation, and being a troublemaker is a lot more um, sort of a, again financially, emotionally consumptive. You know, you're you're really um, 
you're really sticking out beyond um, what other you don't you have no no place to sort of find that ground mm-hmm. I remember when we did the chicken point cabin mm-hmm. which was really interesting because it was a huge window um, but no one had done that so the owner who's a you know just a good friend and a, and kind of in, inherently a kind of a risk taker mm. he said well here goes you know <laughs> and because we had no we had no basis to do what we're we're doing now. Now that Chicken Point window has happened, now it becomes you see all the derivatives mm-hmm. that that can happen mm-hmm. because it's almost like Jeff's window is almost permission now to a bunch of people following because somebody had already done it. Mm-hmm. Well, Jeff was in the position of doing something that we really hadn't seen, mm-hmm. so there was a lot of there was a lot of risk. And that hack can happen at a small scale because the small scale is where you do your research and development. That's why I like residential work. It happens quickly. Uh, you can sort of experiment, like I experimented, experimented on my own house, like experiment with clients, special clients like Jeff, um, to sort of um, uh, invent things. And then, this is, this is really the main point, once that experiment happens and it's, and it's successful, then you can propose it more comfortably to a institutional or a commercial situation mm. at a larger scale mm. because it's already been pr- proven. It's interesting, like you're describing a process of building your own precedence yeah. to justify further decisions and yep. I guess f- the further kind of expansion of boundaries down the road. That's exactly right. Um, so just holding on that one project, Chicken Point Cabin, um, which is kind of a seminal project for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for listeners who aren't familiar, um, it's a cabin in, in North Idaho um, <clears throat> facing a lake, and one facade essentially is a giant um, pane of glass. Mm-hmm. Window. Mm-hmm. It's a giant window with um, quite an elaborate mechanical system mm-hmm. that's manually operated that'll um, tilt this window open um, and expose the... Uh, the cabin's interior to the mm-hmm. to the landscape, and um, you worked really closely with someone on this project, mm-hmm. and on all of the projects that involve these kinds of elaborate mechanical devices. Yep. And that's uh, Phil Turner, who, um, if we were going to kind of give him a title, um, he's I think he's kind of an engineer, but you refer to him as a gizmologist. He called himself <laughs> that. Yeah. <laughs> Because, and it was hilarious, you know, because I, I think I called um, those original sort of devices gizmos, and I forgot where I kind of got that. Um, you know, it was kind of like an offhand joke. Now it's become almost a burden in uh-huh. a sense. Now everybody's, oh, you're the guy that does gizmos. Go, hmm. oh, yeah, yeah, okay. But it was, um, and then he calls himself the gizmologist, and he really is. He's, he's just a brilliant engineer, intuitive engineer. Well, no, not intuitive. Uh, he really understands engineering, uh, you know, f- the, the physics, the mechanics of, of transmissions and mm-hmm. of all the seven, um, you know, all, you know the, the seven engineering principles. Mm-hmm. He knows them so well mm-hmm. and he knows the way things have been done mm-hmm. historically uh, manually mm-hmm. that he can kind of really do the engineering work uh, behind some of these devices. And I have to give him complete credit for that because I can come in and I can say, "Hey, Phil, mm. just based on my background, um, whatever, can can we move? You know, a thirty foot by um, uh, thirty foot by twenty foot window uh, on a on a hinge? Because I think we can. Well, that's easy to say that because I th- was pretty sure we can. He actually makes it work. He actually goes through and." Works out all the uh, the devices and uh, um, the sort of strategies, the engineerings, the geometries to make that work. For that window in particular, <coughs> he describes like how he, as a child, I think, took apart a Victrola phonograph, yeah. which had a flyball governor that regulates the speed of the record. I'm just reading his words now, and he adapted that so that this giant window, which I don't know how many tons, about six and a half tons, six and a half tons, mm-hmm. so that it wouldn't slam. Yeah, and uh, I think his biography is kind of interesting. I just want to expose a little more about where he comes from because mm-hmm. I find it it's so relevant to both your background and the way you think about architecture. So, like, 
Um, he <coughs> grew up on a farm, I think. Um, I guess it was a farm. It was a yeah. It, it was a, definitely a rural situation. I think they were off the grid. Yeah, there was no electricity. Yeah, he's a former car mechanic, mm-hmm. um, and like a phrase that you often invoke in the office um, is you kind of ask the question like, "What would a farmer do?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and you you say that you that phrase is important to you because a farmer wants to solve their problems and get on with farming. Yeah, and exactly. <laughs> <laughs> want, to, want to do it, make a smart decision. And when I watch Phil, he doesn't say, I'm doing what a farmer would do. I just watch a kind of a genius at work, which I think is also true um, if, if, if architecture at its basis. If you can solve a problem in an elegant, efficient way, again, going back to the climbing analogy I, I used, mm-hmm. it wasn't about getting to the top. It was how did, how did you do it efficiently? Did you do it elegantly? Mm. Did you do it with discipline? Um, watching Phil solve what I think is somewhat of an insurmountable problem. Well, I've watched other people because there are other people now doing these gizmos, mm. and I can watch, I can just sort of almost see the parallels, uh, parallel solutions. <clears throat> Phil just, uh, it, it's such an elegant, seemingly easy solution, but then you see somebody else solving the same problem, <clears throat> convoluted, uh, difficult, ultimately probably complex enough that it actually causes maintenance problems. His solutions are just uh, these very elegant um, solutions to this issue. Um, and f- I guess further to that point, um, Phil, in an interview you did with him for your most recent book, Tom Kendig Works, um, was describing like when he was working in the refrigeration business, um, he got a lot of satisfaction out of being able to move um, a 5,000 pound boiler with just a couple of pieces of pipe and a pry bar. <laughs> Yeah. When everybody else figured that he wouldn't have needed a, a forklift to do that. That's exactly right. <laughs> and actually the artist, I learned that from the artist that I worked with. He was he would do, you know, sculptures in the maybe 15, 15 feet tall by 15 feet wide and four feet deep. So relatively heavy, you know, very complex things. And he didn't have a forklift. He didn't have any sort of uh, lift device at all. And he would, I would just watch Harold sort of move these things and I would, and he would, you know, I would be under his sort of direction with pulleys and levers and pry bars, Mm -hmm. just like Phil, moving very, very heavy things, Mm -hmm. just, just using uh, the natural forces and Uh some, some uh, devices. Um, And common sense. And common, and totally (laughs) common sense. And and it it was so elegant. But anyway, and Phil had that same kind of background. And that's the way he solves these gizmo problems. He, it's that same, it's that same kind of attitude of, don't try to make it complex. Analyze a problem and solve it in an elegant way. Like a mathematician. Mm -hmm. You know, a mathematician is always looking to make an elegant equation, which Mm -hmm. is short precise, to the point, and easy to read. I find it so inspiring to hear um, the kind of di- hear about the kind of dialogue and relationship you have with people like Phil, mm. and the, the approach to problem solving that you guys have taken um, to achieve, um, I guess, a simple ends through a simple means, mm-hmm. <laughs> as mm-hmm. opposed to um, kind of bowing to assumptions um, and anxieties um, about the way one ought to do things or the way one ought to solve problems or the way one ought to see problems to begin with. And I think one problem that we deal with as architects now has to do with, um, it's a very boring and simple problem with an incredibly complex set of solutions. And it's it's the facade actually oh, yeah. and um, how it's, built up. Yep. The facade has become such a complex set of products and it just seems like we're not able or not allowed to anymore think about how else to solve the problem of the mm. facade. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder like, mm-hmm. do, you ever f- do you ever feel um, a kind of fire in your belly about, um, I guess, reassessing regulatory norms or questioning oh. 
<laughs> oh yeah. Well, yeah. Questioning that's standards. For sure. Questioning oh, yeah. standards when it comes to yeah. uh, insurance and liability yeah. and regulation. Oh man, you're making a <clears throat> yeah really um, good and an uncomfortable point. Unfortunately, when when we're talking about just the enormous liability that we're all kind of collectively um, involved in and and uh, it's not again it's, it's not f always physical danger liability because that in the architecture world in the structural world that's uh, it, that's probably a relatively minor um, part of uh, construction uh, liability really the liability to your point with facades in particular is just uh, weatherproofing waterproofing um, these uh, relatively complex sort of systems and um, it's gotten to the point where you almost have to just specify a commodity just because then you're protected mm -hmm. you know then there's a there's a company that carries that liability and you can wash your hands of it and and it is really too bad again that circling back to doing your own project you know and I did something that um, it actually works and I wish I could use it on more projects but there's no way in hell I'm going to be able to do what I did with our house which is basically glue glass onto a, a moment frame with this uh, with this um, sort of high-tech caulking hmm. um, because it, you've, you've left yourself exposed to um, a um, a liability stream that is a is a little bit frightening um, you know some of these reinventions that we're talking about that you know with Phil um, I suppose there is you know some liability because we're doing something that isn't really a commodity as an example um, somebody wants to explain to me in terms of liability you can do what you're saying you invent something um, and it's not hasn't been seen before and then something bad happens you're actually liable for that um, but you can leave your keys out on the kitchen uh, table and the keys are to a 450 horsepower Mercedes that teenagers can see the keys grab the car and plow it into you know a thing and cause some real damage and that liability is a different stream than the invented liability it's mm. like somebody misused a commodity mm. in the in that other one apparently an attorney explained this to me mm. and i'm and i'm not understanding totally the nuances but an invented commodity is is, is higher exposure because um, it's unknown, mm. you know, rather than something much more dangerous, mm. which is a car that can go 160, 170 miles an hour. It's such an interesting problem. Like, how how does one invent <coughs> now, given given yeah. the liability and risk involved? How does an architect invent now? Yeah, I think and, I think yeah. you're right. I think it really is true. Like, um, where 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 in contemporary architecture um, do we find this? Th do we find that the kind of pleasure of that risk without exposing ourselves or yeah. uh, exposing other people to harm? <laughs> so, yeah, your point is really a good one. And, you know, OK, I'm just going to make a like a blanket sort of judgment, knowing, you know, as I get into these larger and larger projects um, and I'm I, my strategy is um, because also these larger projects have um, well, even the small projects, they all have budgets at a certain level. And it, I'll just get to the, the point, the budget point really quick. Even on the small projects, I have the same strategy. Basically, make it simple. Make the building kind of as simple as possible. If you look at the floor plan or you look at the spans of some of the stuff I'm doing, most of the building is pretty simple and straightforward. In other words, you can kind of, you can kind of um, invest in the budget at a lower level for the bulk of the building, but then you have an anomaly or you have something goofy happening, whatever that means. I don't want to diminish it, but you know, something is extraordinary that happens. So you t basically take your time and financial commitment and you just move it over to doing something special. So I think on these larger buildings, uh, and I hope I'm answering your question, 
at least this is the way I'm approaching larger buildings, is that absolutely I still want to invent, absolutely I still want to provoke, absolutely I still want to um, cause a little trouble, but is there a way to do the bulk of the building as a, as a commodity sort of delivery system so that you're somewhat protected, uh, not only from a budget um, uh, situation, but also a liability situation. And then where it matters, which is down maybe at the base of the building in a larger building or inside the building, that's where you, you release the dogs in a way and you, and you, you, you do that invention. <clears throat> it just occurred to me, but that was the strategy on my Shinsuke project in um, Seoul was fortunately I was working for you know um, somebody that was more of an individual <clears throat> and we were able to talk about you know the strategy but the base of that building is where the inventions on a large scale really are happening but for the most part the building is very much um, a commodity driven uh, skin. Tom thank you so much for your time. Oh really thank you. It. Really, this is always fun. You know, really, really enjoyed myself. Thank you. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Aworth of the band Stanley Park. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Tom Kundig, and thanks to the Architecture Foundation for their support. Thanks as always to Scandalin, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.